Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us in a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, BC and also recording from Bowser, BC. In the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. I'm talking to you today from uh, Skichisanulu, which is part of the Shikwetmik Nation, and Shikwetmikulu is the territory that I'm on. I live, work, and play here, and everything I do is oriented around trying to be a good guest and honor the principles of reciprocity and respect that allow us to be here alongside Chicago peoples. Okay, here we go. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Jenny. What is new today in the world of archaeology? <laughs> so much happening. Right now, it's, I guess we, we wanted to talk today about archaeology and how it intersects with fire. Because a good part of our province is on fire right now. Tell me about it, because my husband keeps calling me uh, to ask me to get my agenda out to see um, how he can help with the fires, like based upon just very complicated personal and professional appointments and things. So we're, we're juggling with that, but he's getting like hourly calls right now. Yeah. Can you tell the listeners what your husband does for a living? Yeah, so my husband, Tony, works with the BC Wildfire Services, and he is a, he helps communities find funding to fire smart their areas, and he also uh, works on the planning side of wildfire. So when there is any active fire that's happening, it's an interface, interface fire, so it's interacting with, uh, you know, pr- property or people, then he is to run the operation side of that fire directing things that kind of thing that's good to know because i i i know tony works for the bc wildfire service but i didn't actually know what he does so that's <laughs> it's it's kind of a mystery to me too <laughs> in our community too there's some signs posted by the mailbox about um, being fire smart and to sign up for a fire i guess it's like a uh, fire assessment of, of our property. Mm, yeah. So I emailed the gal and hoping to hear back. I'd like to get our our new property assessed because yeah. the forest does have a lot of like downed trees and I think it could be cleaned up a bit. And they said they were going to be offering free chipping of that like woody debris on August 3rd. So I'm hoping to get in on that. Yeah, we also, we just got funding here in, in our district, uh, Deep Bay Bowser. We just got funding to do fire smarting throughout the community, which is really great. Awesome. And we had planned this podcast to have a couple of guests who are in the, I guess, in the business of working with fires. And unfortunately, we we couldn't get everyone here today because they got deployed, <laughs> But we do have uh, one guest, and I'm excited to, to have Joanne on the session today. Joanne, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Joanne Hammond. Uh, I'm an archaeologist. I am the Director of Heritage with 
Skechiston Natural Resources, which is one of the communities of the Shkwetmik Nation in the southern interior of BC. Thanks for being available today. I know you're uh, you're currently in a an awkward situation in your community as well, and you're um, sitting in your car <laughs> <laughs> to do this podcast. Yeah, right now we are, the community has been evacuated because of the Sparks Lake wildfire, which broke out on the 28th of June, and the community was evacuated on July 2nd. The fire has grown to about 47,000 hectares and is all along the eastern boundary of the reserve and spent a harrowing nine days uh, crawling along the ridges right above the community within hundreds of meters of our buildings and offices. And since we've been evacuated, there's now another fire uh, going on 12,000 hectares that is within four kilometers of where we were evacuated to. So we're quite sandwiched in between these two fires and I am enjoying some air-conditioned reprieve here in my mobile office, um, staring basically at a solid wall of smoke. Jesus. Yeah. That's scary. <laughs> it's, it's been a busy few weeks. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess by way of kind of introduction, Joe, just to orient you. So um, Amanda and I wanted to do this podcast more generally, not just on wildfire, but we started the podcast because um, during a COVID, when it started, we did our webinar series last June, and we got a tremendous amount of feedback from folks, and it became apparent that there's not always venues to talk about the reality of what's going on in archaeology, the reality of what it's like to work in archaeology right now, the challenges, how we're failing, how we're succeeding, all the different aspects. And so we, we thought that a podcast would be a really accessible way for folks to participate in these discussions and and ultimately we're trying to promote conversations on how we can improve our discipline we have no rules basically none at all yeah so maybe we should start with a bit of background uh to you like what's what's your origin story how did how did you get from a to b well okay uh i'm trying to think of a good place to start <laughs> It probably wasn't a straight line. <laughs> it wasn't a straight, straight line, line. but um, I'll say that I was trained fairly conventionally in academic anthropology and archaeology, and and as was the the norm at the time, fairly convinced by everybody in that setting that the only good and reasonable jobs were in ac academia, and to continue on to to graduate degrees in teaching and. I fortuitously, through a series of coincidences and failures, ended up connecting with um, Colin Greer, who was working, beginning his PhD work on Galliano Island, and I was invited to come and excavate with, with him and the team on their first exploratory field season there, and in doing so, I was sort of uh, caught uh, gently landed in a in a network of very uh, informed and supportive and well connected people in in BC cultural resource management and uh, was introduced to sort of the world of of that of uh, CRM archaeology that way and got into it fairly quickly and and again in in a lot of really conventional roles but mostly oriented towards work that that engaged 
strongly with Indigenous communities. But I wouldn't say there was anything really directing me very much other than conventional archaeological management principles. In 2014, I attended the event for the Truth and Reconciliation of Canada Commission in Vancouver, where I heard Justice Murray Sinclair, who was the chair of the TRC, um, in his closing comments, talk about the need to uh, right the balance and balance the rights that existed at the time when we first met. So when settlers and Indigenous people first met. And that uh, phrase and idea stuck in my brain and particularly around uh, archaeology and heritage management practices that were very distinctly out of balance uh, if they had ever been in balance and thought if there's one way that archaeologists could contribute to the, the idea and program of reconciliation, it would be to find ways to, to write that balance within our own industry. And so following that, I pretty much reoriented myself to working exclusively with Indigenous communities and uh, helping to kind of stand up traditional and community-based approaches to heritage management and sort of assist in the reclamation of jurisdiction over heritage and um, helping development develop um, management. So my approach to sort of embracing the, the role and the need for bringing balance to back to heritage management is partly supporting Indigenous communities and their goals around reclaiming jurisdiction, but I think we also have a big role to play in educating the public and bringing the truth to, to truth and reconciliation. And so I, um, and I really do believe that until Canadians have a sense of what was lost, what has been lost through colonization, that the motivation to reconcile won't be enough efficient to get, get where we need to go. And I see archaeology playing a pretty big role in that because we are able to tell the stories of pre-colonial existence and help uh, non-experts understand the depth and intensity of Indigenous occupations and connections here. And and that's partly unfortunate because that information exists in the knowledge and histories and accounts of Indigenous peoples. But the, the, the very hard truth is, is that that is not still taken as seriously as Western methods of knowing. And so archaeologists uh, like it or are in a position of being seen as experts here and having the trust of the public. And I think I really, really believe we need to use that in order to lay out the truth in order for there to be some, some sort of plausible basis for, for reconciliation to take place. We were talking about how we first met. Uh, Amanda was talking about how she first intersected with you. And, and I was talking about how I first intersected with you. I couldn't quite remember the timeline, but I was saying that I, I remember feeling um, 
really fired up that there was someone else who was clearly articulating my dissatisf my dissatisfaction with with my discipline of archaeology and as well like the social framework it exists within but i remember being really fired up that there was someone who was clearly articulating these ideas that i felt really viscerally but i, I really wasn't sure how to communicate in a public education forum i remember having you in my kitchen talking about these issues yes. And, and getting getting mutually acquainted about yeah each other's perspectives and and feeling the same way <laughs> i wonder if we could talk about a current snapshot maybe in like tangible examples of the imbalances that are still particular within the discipline of archaeology would that be useful mm. i see currently in the discipline yeah it, glacial change uh, and and part of what's slowing it down is is that it's still not not uh uh wholly felt by everybody i feel like the it it's partly starting to fragment the the discipline somewhat in that there are a lot of practitioners who are interacting with indigenous communities and engaging with them in novel and productive ways on the ground and there's a there's been a palpable shift in the like in the community as a whole and in individuals that i know um, over the past 15 years or so and and certainly in the in the last five years but I don't see the equivalent change or even under level of understanding in the regulatory side of archaeology. And by that, I mean, of course, the archaeology branch, because they're kind of omnipotent uh, as far as our regulatory work goes. But but I mean, all of government and and and, and in part in just the industry framework that we work in as well. I'm not seeing the same commitment. And but also, having said also that, Joe, the environmental assessment yeah. framework as well. Yes. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt yeah, you. That, <laughs> no, not at all. That's that's definitely a big part of it. Yeah, and and big and small, right? Both you know federal level environmental assessment projects and and this you know um, piecemeal ones that we tend to engage in with with forestry and other sorts of developments for sure. But I am seeing an opening up amongst individual practitioners uh, really in the past couple of years that is that surprises me frankly people who in the not too distant past were very firmly gatekeepers of the profession and very certain that um, indigenous people were not capable of the kind of professionalism and care that archaeologists um, you know, have claimed as their own. And those many of those very people I, I have seen shift and become uh, more open to, to ideas of engaging with in Indigenous communities. I am cynical, I will admit. So I, I see that some of it is self-serving, that they see where the money is going and where the opportunities mm -hmm. are going. And so it makes sense to ally yourselves with the source of that income. But I even in that with that with that cynicism, I, I see at least that proximity is changing people. So whether or not they're getting into it for the right, quote unquote, right ethical reasons, just working in closer proximity with indigenous communities and listening to them uh, more closely is, is actually having an impact on individual practices. And these tend to be the people I'm talking about tend to be influential people in the discipline. And so that as a whole is I, I feel is starting to affect a, a bigger shift overall. 
there's miles to go, obviously. The inability of the regulatory side of things to shift ahead of a, of a top-down mandate from a provincial government is a problem that is really hard to get around. That is, to me, the biggest issue right now is that we need leadership on this from all angles, so from Indigenous leaders, uh, but the provincial regulatory system that really has a, a like a, a vice grip hold on us as far as how we can practice archaeology if we still want to maintain our professional accreditation is as inflexible as it ever was and and as demonstrably unwilling to change until there is a word for word mandate that comes from the top of the profession of the provincial government and that that's where i feel we're getting stuck is that practices on the ground have a lot of a lot more creativity and flexibility and compassion. And it is very hard to fit those into the boxes that the, that, that regulatory archeology span um, feels that we need to, to be fit into. And it's interesting because there should actually be limitless potential now that we have DRIPA, right? Bill 41, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People Act from the end of 2019. And we also have very clear 94, very clear calls to action from the TRC. Mm-hmm. And there still seems to be this uh, wonderful commitment verbally to these ideas, but it hasn't been actioned in any meaningful sense, at least in archaeology. I know that there's um, actions that are happening with regard to healthcare and social welfare, though I, I'm sure that practitioners in those fields too would, would point out the challenges. I don't know anything about those fields. I'm wondering why is there still this this huge canyon this huge gulf between there are these actionable guidelines there are pathways there are other models of reconciliation from other parts of the world that have on the ground actions and I'm wondering do you have any ideas about how um, like we should be bridging those gaps should archaeologists have a copy of DRIPA and the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People have, you know, a flowchart of FPIC and what free prior and informed consent looks like like on their desk and be using it for every phone call that they have or every project that they have? Like, how, how can we action some things that happen if the legislator isn't going to action them? Is there ways that we as, a, as practitioners can? Wow, that was a long way to ask a really simple <laughs> question. <laughs> Because I was using all these damn acronyms. And then I'm like, oh, right now, everyone knows what these acronyms are. (laughs) Uh, You know what? Essentially, yes. I don't think that's too far off having to be referencing those documents and those principles in our everyday activities. I think it has to be done. We have to remind, uh, somebody has to be responsible for knowing the content of those those guiding documents and and having ideas for how to actually enact them because as much as we we say and this is like the greater we so in my role with Skechiston I am responsible for the referrals that we're getting for other people's archaeology right all of the permits relating to archaeology that would go on in the territory and it's not enough to to remind government that uh, that DRIPA and UNDRIP 
and the TRC exists. It's not even enough to remind them of specific calls to action or principles or articles. We have to we have to draw a straight line between that and a, and, a, and a practice on the ground. And then it needs to be backed up by practitioners. So I think that this is where the gap gets filled is non-Indigenous people need to stand behind what Indigenous people and practitioners are saying and repeat it loudly and often and then show that they're doing it in their own work whether or not that's your actual client whether or not that's the you know the core territory that you're working in we need to all make ourselves aware of where indigenous peoples are standing on these issues and back them up because it's not enough we know this and we know that we live in a in a society that is still uh, extremely hierarchical and and bigoted in favor of Western Western perspectives and 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 settler culture, and so those people have a lot of influence, and they need to be they practitioners of archaeology need to be using that influence to support what Indigenous people are saying, and that can make them unpopular. It can make the regulators unhappy with them. It can slow down work. It can even lose money. And, and those are things that are, have gotten in the way of people you know, standing up for things that they know are right. I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with archeologists over the years who absolutely agree with me and with you and with the indigenous people that we work on behalf of, but are unwilling to, to risk their professional standing or the ire of their, their employers in order to, to do the right thing. And that's the problem. We need to light a fire under archaeologists through our professional organization and through regulators to be able to support these ideas, these like very practical ways to express and, and exercise sovereignty and rights and responsibility with heritage. It's, it's on settlers, really, to do the backing up now. It's so weird that um, for a profession, we don't have a reliance model, we don't have a professional reliance model, but we have a model, I suppose. We have a code of conduct and it would seem that as a small organization, BC archaeologists would be quite, would be quite um, agile to these kinds of things. And we have a very, you know, co collectively, I'm using a general brush, but collectively speaking, we have very well-informed, um, well-organized First Nations groups in the province who know exactly what they want and how they want it done. So we have these great models to work from. We have a lot of intelligent folks um, in our field and we have a business model that would seem to support this as a good business practice, if nothing else, a, an ethical approach as a good business practice, if for no other reason. And yet it still seems optional and we're still, uh, you know, it's still falling on the shoulders of of practitioners when we do have a couple other places that could come from like the regulator or even our, our association of, of professional archaeologists, the BCAPA. So that's fairly frustrating. I love that you point that out, Jenny. The BCAPA could be doing more. If not them, then who? <laughs> I mean, it's... Yeah, um, it, yeah, I totally agree. I think fundamentally there's a responsibility there to be acting on the things we're talking about and we get bogged down in really what are overall fairly insignificant debates and discussions and issues when there's this giant elephant in the room. And the room is, I mean, imagine our professional association meetings or the archaeology branches communities of practice meeting where you look around and a, a sea of, of almost uniformly white faces 
um, making decisions about Indigenous heritage. And there is a slight awareness of that, but clearly not enough to do anything about it. So if like those organizations are are fundamentally responsible for pushing that change. And I don't I don't see it happening. And some of the the kinds of attitudes that I'm talking about where where professionals in good standing aren't willing to risk their uh, their own uh, reputation, clients, money, whatever it is they think that they would risk. It's like particularly a challenge to improve our discipline where we have maybe inadvertently set ourselves at a disadvantage with our like Western normative training where we're all going to universities where it's a bunch of other white people teaching a bunch of white people um, about a certain type of archaeology. And then we move from there into uh, CRM firms, uh, cultural resource management firms that are largely the same white people. then practicing archaeology and then we look for support from our professional associations and our regulatory body which is more of the same again and so we've in terms of widening how we do archaeology and for whom we do it we have kind of uh, hamstringed ourselves uh, immediately mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. we're in echo chambers very successful echo chambers where we're you know echoing back to one another and and i think that the exciting thing is when we step outside of those echo chambers and ask other people why archaeology should be done and how it should be done we were t- talking a little bit about that as well how we can look to other places like undrip and dripa for new ways of considering what cultural heritage and archaeology can mean for the reconciliation reconciliation process and how, you know, I'm doing air quotes, which is a really successful podcast tool, um, how, you know, giving up control of these aspects of what we do as resource managers, heritage resource managers, is is actually part of that reconciliation process as well. Mm-hmm. As you describe these, you know, institutions that sort of train and perpetuate the same kinds of people and the same kinds of ideas it is that there's very little there are very few models that communities can look to to for doing things a different way and some communities who are well resourced and have had the opportunities or you know like historically or in contemporary existence to be able to uh, identify and articulate and formulate ways that heritage management should be done. There are communities that, that are in that position and able to do it and do not need a bunch of archaeologists just to validate the process or get them in the door. Many, many more do not have that and so don't have a lot of supporting quietly and on the sidelines whatever the thing is that the Indigenous community wants to do. And I think that the fact that CRM archaeology, cultural resource management, has come out of ideas internally about how to resume control over those, over over heritage, and are looking to archaeologists for that, right, to, to like-minded archaeologists. And one of the things that I see happening is that it just, it does end up replicating uh, the system and some of the problems that exist in that system. It's very difficult when and all of us are so entrenched in the system, even those of, those of us who want to see it changed, to have the creativity to, to, to find ways to do it differently. And, to, and honestly, the patience and the sort of willingness to take risks following ideas in order to create something that's relatively new, even if it's based in uh, you know, traditional laws and, and outlooks. And so we get sort of hung up on, on, on just 
trading, taking over an kind of archaeology that CRM does and just doing it in-house, which happens a lot. And that's partly because of all the, the lack of modeling that we see for other options and the boxes that we put ourselves in. I'm thinking about the idea of risk, like why this is considered risky still. And uh, it seems like right now, I would say our discipline, at least this has been our experience on like the, the straight consulting side, we're, we're all um, overwhelmed, we're overworked. Our disciplines become a huge pinch point for uh, permit holders who you know hold the keys to these development projects going through. And it seems to me that there, at some point, it, it's about to tip and it will become even more risky to risk projects being held up by not having First Nations approval or First Nations involvement or indicating FPIC or indicating those kinds of things. So I, I, I feel like the, the risk register that clients and consulting firms are filling out for certain projects, it's missing a few lines <laughs> there to make it accurate in 2021. And it's an ongoing daily problem. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly with clients. Yeah. And, and strangely enough, I see a lot of the opportunity from, for change and that closing that gap that we were discussing before, a lot of the responsibility there, or at least the opportunity falling on proponents, on industry proponents. So what we're seeing is they want certainty. They're not particularly concerned in how they get it. Certainty used to lie with following the archaeology branch's rules and follow and following right. the letter of the law of the Heritage Conservation Act and whatever whatever other uh, usually government liaisons are giving them advice about. But it is less and less, certainty is less and less to be found with those people in those institutions and more and more with the satisfaction of Indigenous communities. And I'm saying satisfaction because I don't think we're right, we're quite going for consent yet, which we should be, but mm -hmm. at least for uh, some sort of uh, peace in the valley, we call it here. And the proponents are, are really hungry for direction. They want to be told what is the right thing to do and shown how to do it in what is the most expedient way possible. And they are, I, I find, often more willing to, to adapt to our processes and requests than, say, the archaeology branch would be or, or government would be because they have the, their business interests in mind and they are able to see exactly, as Amanda said, like where those hangups are if Indigenous communities are not satisfied with what's going on and the de potential delays and are willing in a lot of cases for the people that we work with here anyway, uh, willing to support what we're doing to try to get their project moving in the end. And in the case of Skeetchison and our um, sort of a, a campfire community to come loops, so Skeetchison and to come loops together are uh, part of the Tecumlo's Tishikwepmik Nation. They are, which is a one of the traditional campfires of the of the Shikwepmik Nation. And so there's a there's sort of a political umbrella. And that organization, uh, staffed by our archaeologists and and Tecumlo's archaeologists, are creating a heritage law based on traditional principles and traditional laws that apply to the entire land and everything in it, not, not just archaeology, and uh, developing that into something that will, we will stand up next to BC's heritage law 
and require that everybody follows it. And the key to getting that functioning and to getting actually enacting that is really getting industry on board and telling them where we're going with it and that this is the rule now. And if we're following this rule, then you can tell the archaeology bench whatever you want. You can you can pass pass on our regards basically. Um, and, and we're not going to fuss too much about their permits anymore. And but we really need industry buy-in for that. And that mm -hmm. is a whole separate area of kind of education and outreach that a lot of archaeologists and First Nations aren't thinking too, too hard about that they really, really should be because they are our allies, right? Industry, whether we like it or not, that's where our business is coming from. And they need to be helping us on this road as well. I'm thinking about that, what you just said, Joe and Amanda, I'm thinking about some of the work we've been doing to help uh, some nations, particularly in the North, develop their own permitting and policy and kind of like how we've seen that be used. Mm -hmm. Because it's such, it's such an, it, it, like from a consultant perspective, it's so easy to support communities. <laughs> like, it's actually very easy to do and, and to help it be written down and, and just to, to help like bridge the capacity gap. Like they, some of the communities we work with, they have these very clear heritage goals and interests, but simply don't have the capacity because of, um, they don't have the numbers, let's say in the office to just write it down. Uh -huh. And so we've been coming in and just very simply being like, do you want us to write it down for you? Like, tell us what it is you want. Yeah. Let us write it down for you. Well, I'm thinking of with the referrals, uh, the, the system that's in place right now with the archaeology branch, how oh, yeah. the referrals are sent to these communities. A lot of the communities get piles, like stacks and stacks of these referrals coming in, and they just simply don't respond to them because they don't understand what what they mean. Uh, like the, the wording that's included in the permit applications that archaeologists submit. And so they don't know how to respond to them. And still, even post Chilcotin, that is still considered consent if they don't respond. Yeah. Which is bonkers. Yeah. By, by any measure, like just by the Oxford Dictionary, that is not, that is not what that is. Yeah. Well, and I'll say it's, it's not just not knowing how to respond because perhaps it's a, like, it, it's a technical issue that you don't think you're qualified to weigh in on, but it's also um, a cost benefit it's a choice mm -hmm. that people make because if you've ever spent any amount of time responding to a referral from the archaeology branch and actually getting into the changes you'd like to see in a specific permit application or articulating the community's objections to certain approaches, personnel, methods, study areas, those kinds of things, you know that it ends up nowhere. Yeah. Nowhere. Like, a hundred percent of the time the archaeology branch will sign a decision letter that basically parrots your points back to you and says we're going to do it anyway and so after doing that a few times a lot of people in referrals offices across this province have lost interest in engaging with the archaeology branch on that because they are not capable they're not equipped to do consultation in a meaningful way. They don't have the intent or capacity to change anything about what they're doing. And it's a it's a show, really. It's it's just 
to, to it's for the government to check its own boxes in, in that sense, it doesn't get anywhere. And so there is a lack of engagement on those kinds of things, which is, of course, interpreted as consent, because people have to choose their battles, right? In a referrals office that gets, I mean, we get about two to four referrals every business day that require responding to right? Like the, the, nobody has the capacity to, 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 to handle no. that. Government certainly can't. And th- to expect these small communities that are very often under-resourced and don't have the staff capable of teasing out the te- technical issues in these reports, you have to choose which ones you're going to make some headway on. And I think archaeology often gets sort of left behind because people have those experiences with the branch where it doesn't matter how hard you, you fight, how, how good your case is, and how important the principle is. If nothing changes, it's, it's, you can't waste your resources on that. And so there is the argument right there for, for creating your own laws and your own policies and standing them up next to BCs quite parallel with it and insisting that everybody in the territory engages with those laws and policies and they can make their choice about how they wanna deal with the archeology span branch. I'm going to try not to slag the archaeology branch too much. So I, <laughs> okay. I, you, can, you can slag away. Uh, I, I, I think it would be fair to say that we're fans of some of the individuals that work there, um, but we're not necessarily fans of the house they all choose to share. Yeah, mm-hmm. it definitely needs an overhaul. And I think Joanne was able to like strongly point that out. A number of years ago, uh, Joanne put out a survey to the consulting archaeologists uh, asking questions about the Heritage Conservation Act and the current system that we work under. And I want to commend you for doing that. That was that was an amazing research project that you took on. <laughs> and I'm wondering what if you remember what you got out of that. I do. There were some pretty key areas of consensus that since then I have as often as I can, uh, laid those down in front of bureaucrats of note who might be able to influence things. And there was a lot of specific questions around different ways of conducting archaeology. But for me, one of the key responses was when people were asked how we, how archaeology should be regulated in the province that I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 54% of respondents either chose by a First Nations regulator or by a joint First Nations BC regulator. So, and and with the other options, I believe it was was less than 30%, it was around 27% of respondents chose the status quo. And that that was a- Really? Yeah. I didn't realize it was that hot. And that's enough people that believe that we should be doing things differently that I thought we should be getting somewhere by now. But that was five years ago. And I don't see any moves um, by either the province or frankly, by our, our professional organization to try to push a different way of doing things. And while every, you know, community can um, expend their energy and resources on developing their own individual heritage policies and laws, and I encourage them to do so, unless there is a, a, a regulator that is, that is more balanced, that isn't, does not just represent the province's interests, I don't think we're going to see the big change we want to see. And so from that, that survey, that was one of the 
one of, for me, one of the key responses that I saw, there were a lot of, a lot of very uh, conservative comments on there though, from people who really do for whatever reason, enjoy the status quo um, and are afraid of change generally. And so while they may sort of agree with the ideas, the actually shifting away from the way it is now is gonna is gonna be difficult for people. And how do you think we can make that shift or or help to influence that? As I said before, I think it's by being quite vocal and, and repetitive in supporting what it is that First Nations are saying, so that the sort of full force of the community is behind it, not just letting Indigenous people fight the fight for us, which we very often do in famously in environmental issues because they have the greatest stake in it and and sometimes that's well-meaning uh obviously a lot of people are very sensitive to not wanting to talk over indigenous people or speak for them but i don't i I think it's it's dangerous to confuse that with staying silent instead and we need to be able to we need to be able to amplify all of the messages that need to get out there and everybody needs to be you know singing the same song about it the change is big and I I don't want to like you say the the institution of the archaeology branch is the problem but I do think there's some degree of uh, sort of personality driven uh, agenda there that is that is getting in the way of change and that is people who behave very dogmatically and are not going to change uh, what they're doing until there is a specific instruction handed down from, say, the at the ministry, deputy minister level, to to them about how they are um, supposed to be engaging with archaeology for Indigenous communities. Yeah, I I agree with you 100%, Joe. <clears throat> I remember it was a real eye opener for me a few years ago when I had been participating in a session at the SAAs, which is the Society for American Archaeology, their annual conference, um, Jenny and I made a point of trying to attend as many as we could. And they're always in North America and different places every year. And I had gotten sort of comfortable in this one particular session that was around community-based archaeology and community-based practice. It was really refreshing that session and everyone who participated in it over the years, but it was, it was also an eye-opener that of a conference of that size with like thousands of archaeologists from around the world that they would have to have a session <laughs> about community-based work. <laughs> like it should just be, that should be how we do archaeology. It shouldn't be just a handful of people with you know mm-hmm. do, with those ideas so that was an eye-opener for me well I, I feel similarly about the bcapa's indigenous engagement committee that it's just a small handful of people who are going to take extra time out of their day after hours to work on those issues when it is so clearly the business of the entire organization we wouldn't have jobs without indigenous people yeah. and to, to pretend that it's uh, it's sort of a niche issue, uh, I think is kind of an abdication of professional responsibility that I'd really like to see changed. 
we've been, I mean, there's so many different ways. I'm trying to think of like uh, tangible, even small things that people can do. So if there's like consultants listening and they're like, oh, we want to change our hearts in the right place, but it's like, well, that's really good. Like the, the, it's great to have intention, but I, I feel like we're well past that. And so we're always trying to think of like tangible ways we can help people just think of like easy ways that they can, they can improve our discipline. And one thing that we've been working on is, is widening who can do archaeology we think it's absolute nonsense um that like we're the only experts as deemed from the top mm-hmm. and so we've been trying to widen that if for no other reason if people won't do it because it's the right thing they should do it because our our, capa- our capacity as a discipline is completely max we we you know we can't do the work that needs to be done there's not enough of us and so we should be looking at other people who are who who are you know currently considered non-expert heritage users recognizing them as the experts that they actually are so we've been trying to support that by by even even like really small ways if people want it, if consultants want to get low hanging fruit, start working with the people who are on your, on your team in the field who are from communities to help them get recognized as, as experts, as field directors and permit holders within our discipline so that they can be doing their own heritage work. Um, is something we've been trying to promote as well. Instead of this ad hoc checking the box of having First Nations representation, actually making it a collaborative enterprise where there's some takeaways um, for the community participants as well, so that every time they come out uh, within the framework of this broken system, they're better for it instead of being slowly (laughs) eroded. Um, in terms of of the value that they bring to the team, which we still see happening. So that's something we've been trying to do, which is very easy. Anyone can do that. Anyone can help people record days and experience towards field directorship or permit holdership, um, and then use that expertise to prove that you don't have to get a, a bachelor's degree at Simon Fraser University and have 360 days in order to be able to be the authority within an area as well. We do the same thing and it is a very simple step by just tracking people's progress. So easy. I would like to see that formalized a little more. I have a dream idea where archaeologists in BC can have the same, a similar arrangement to how registered professional foresters are trained Mm -hmm. in the sense of having essentially a contract with a mentor who it agrees to get you to a certain point by a certain time. And it is by tracking your progress and making sure that you have experience in different areas, but a sort of a, a mutual, mutually beneficial relationship where at the end of a, of a, of a three or a five year period, you will have, have helped that person not only gain the relevant experience, but also have documented it so that they can, hold up that experience as as accreditation and I don't think that's difficult or expensive or would be burdensome or would weigh on you know any more on on any one consultant if the entire community engaged in something like that so that that's one thing but as far as as sort of easy things that take very little effort sending out plans and permit applications to First Nations well before you consider submitting them to the archaeology branch goes a really long way. We have the most productive discussions doing that. And that way we could hear about the concerns and feedback from communities before it 
enters the what can often become an antagonistic arena when the archaeology branch gets involved in doing referrals and then sort of um, being the middleman on the responses to the referrals. So, so we send out a permit application for everybody to discuss as far in advance as we can and try to get those changes into the permit application before we even submit it to the archaeology branch so that we're not leaving the consultation in their hands entirely. And then also being responsive to the issues that First Nations bring up when they are responding to permit referrals to the archaeology branch. And a lot of those referrals are, or a lot of those comments are often directed at the archaeology branch and the, the Heritage Conservation Act. And archaeologists can sort of excuse themselves from the discussion. Oh, that's directed to the archaeology branch or the project officer. That's not really my business. We'll let them sort it out. But I like to, frankly, and this won't surprise you, get right in there and tell them exactly what we are going to do uh, about each of the points that they brought up make solid commitments if you you want to have a say in site significance evaluations for example absolutely we can commit to that like say that out loud in in writing we can commit to that and this is how we're going to do it and this is where we're going to do it and this is what the process is going to look like and this is how we will support you if you need some financing or some training or whatever it is to be able to actually weigh in on those things actively and then even in things that you feel maybe not be exactly in your realm again supporting the indigenous voices and, and issues by actually acting on them and acknowledging that they're real and that they are pro our problems. So I'll give you an example. I recently submitted an application that went to our, our neighbors at the Lower Nicola Indian Band. And they, while we have a very good working relationship on the ground, they do still have rights and title to protect and they do still speak up on the same issues. And much of it is directed at the, the institution. But in this case, one of their concerns was the repository that we had selected. So being in the Shkwetmik Nation, we prefer all of the collections to go to the Shkwetmik Museum and Archives here in Kamloops. And the response from Laura Nicola was that they would prefer the artifacts to go to the Royal BC Museum, not because they, they prefer it as an institution, but because they don't have a good access agreement with the Shkwetmik Museum and Archives. And because of that, they are not assured that they can know what is in that museum and be, have access to it to provide culturally appropriate care or research or, or whatever their interest is in accessing it. So when I see that, that can be something that the archaeology branch can respond to probably in a neutral or even negative way and get nowhere, but instead throw myself in the middle, offer my services to help rectify that problem. So I acknowledge that's a real problem. And while it is not my problem, it is our problem as a community. So I offer to speak to the, to the museum and to the community that the museum resides in and see if we can't get an access agreement so that there can be a shared repository that is local, that doesn't put anything at risk by sending it to RBCM where nobody will ever see it again. And, and that kind of thing goes a long way toward assuring communities that you are actually trying to make things better and not necessarily just, just for your own purposes. I was thinking back to what you were saying about referrals. I have a bunch of notes here, but I guess we can't really talk forever. An interesting thing is happening with referrals and First Nations comments right now and making that commitment. So I've seen it most often in the Vancouver area. 
Uh, we'll get feedback from nations, really robust feedback, which is great, like very clear direction from the nations, uh, comments on our, our uh, Heritage Conservation Act permits. And then we write a letter back that has like a table that says what section is referred to and like how we're specifically responding. So that's all well and good. What's interesting to me is I assumed then that those changes would make it into the permit you would think. Mm. Um, and then I was told by the archaeology branch, no, they're not actually going to have legislative acknowledgement or, or permitted acknowledgement of those changes because it would trigger an additional referral period. Yeah. yeah. To which I said, isn't that the point? <laughs> isn't, isn't that the point? So um, that's something that's been coming up that we're kind of scratching our heads because on the one hand, it would very much slow down an already very slow process um, and clients are absolutely freaking out. But on the other hand, isn't that fundamentally the point is to like send something, that's how you have a conversation. You send something to everyone, they say what they like or don't like about it. And then you kind of share how that's been changed yeah. or how it has yeah. improved practice. So then everyone can be like, oh, I feel good about that. Or, oh, I'm still not okay with that. So it's still like this toe dipping that's happening, but like no commitment beyond that, that that is, that's my current head scratcher mm -hmm. in Vancouver. Well, that, yeah. And that's what I mean when I say that the archeology span branch has no intent or capacity to consult they 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 cannot they are not equipped to do it that what they're doing they're is not. not consultation and that is has been my experience i have been in the position of responding to referrals now for this community for going on seven years and never not a single time has anything we've said ever been included in a permit every time it is taken in one way or another and the decision is made to issue the permit as is and this is why I'm saying show your permits to First Nations before you show them to the branch because once the branch sends it out for referral it's written in stone they're not going to change it because of what you just said because they're not interested in having an entirely different consultation process now so some of that can be alleviated by dealing with First Nations before you deal with the branch treat them as the the primary party of interest in all of this and you may not need to have that second round of consultation the problem mm -hmm. of course is fundamentally that the archaeology branch has grown into an era where they are required to do true consultation but they are ne they were never an institution that was equipped to do it. Nobody there is properly trained to do it. They don't know how, what they, they, they're not aware of the spectrum of rights and title issues that are on the table when you're talking about cultural heritage and the developments that may be prompting these assessments. And they're archeologists, frankly, they're, <laughs> they're not political scientists and they're not equipped by their own, uh, by their own employers to manage this properly. So they just keep building on top of a system, a really broken system, never designed to do what they're doing now. And they just keep making it ever more elaborate. And it can't contain the entire spectrum of rights and title that Indigenous people are talking about right now. And they really, really want to contain it, right? They want to they want to talk about this very, very narrow aspect of it. What size is your screen and where are your wet site deposits going to go? Like very, very technical aspects that they would like to keep it to without acknowledging the entire context that it takes place in. 
in my mind, I don't think the archaeology branch should have that role at all, frankly, but it would require a breaking down of, of the system, which we haven't quite got to yet. No, we haven't. Amanda knows this already. I'm, I'm utterly exhausted um, from, you know, going on however many years, going on 20 years in this industry. And I cannot imagine what it is like for communities who have been doing it much longer, like mm-hmm. dealing with the same frustrations, mm-hmm. I mean, um, and, and much bigger frustrations. But, but like professionally, I have to say, I, I am so exhausted by our discipline. <laughs> Like, yeah, it's very, it's very hard to, it, I find, and I'm generally an optimistic person and I find it sometimes very difficult to see my way through this in an optimistic uh, fashion. Um, and I think, I think people need to talk about that too, right? That this isn't easy work and they shouldn't expect it to be easy work. And if it's easy, they're probably not doing it right. Mm. Th- and that's not to say that because I'm tired, that means I'm doing it right. That that's That's not what I mean but it it's supposed to be hard it is really hard <laughs> to, to, yeah. to make things better right yeah. um and i think that that's part of what new, you know early career archaeologists maybe aren't getting that message they're being told there's a really robust legislative system that's been set up for a really long time and you'll be guaranteed lots of work and, <laughs> and i'm like um they are being sold a shit bill of sale mm-hmm. if that's what they think they're signing mm-hmm. up for yeah also like the policies that are written within the, the system that get changed regularly without consulting with first nations or the discipline they just throw out a new bulletin once in a while <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, like major changes that have happened to the way that we record and manage culturally modified trees that would have been nice to have had some input on. It is really exhausting. We should we should talk about this more. I think this is a great conversation that we've had today, but we've also gone over time. So I think there's a couple of last questions that we wanna ask Joanne. One of them is for the listeners, what is the one thing you'd like all Canadians, not only archeologists to take away from this conversation that we're having? I think people need to understand that heritage is a right. It's a human right and it's an indigenous right. And it is is inalienable. We can't take it away from people and they can't give it up. And so when we do, when we do heritage wrong, we're violating people's rights. And we have to look at it as seriously as, as any other human right, the way that we're doing it. And we have to address that imbalance as seriously as if we were violating any other human right and, and, and treat it with the same urgency to, to repair it and to give Indigenous people a say and a role and a lead in how it is researched, studied, interpreted, managed, and discussed. I love that. <laughs> That's well said, Joanne. Thank you. Well, thank you, Joe. I mean, we're, we're not even scratching the surface at this point. Uh, there's so much to talk about. And this is what the, this podcast is supposed to be about, is talking about things that maybe other people don't have the mental bandwidth, the experiential bandwidth, or um, the bureaucratic bandwidth to talk about. Maybe they are like at a large consulting firm where they're not allowed to talk about these things, but we're allowed to talk about them and we're going to talk about them. So we <laughs> 
um, you know, this is just the beginning of the conversation. Well, thank you so much, Joe. Thanks for being on the, the session today. And we hope to have you back. Um, yeah, thanks, Joe. It's been too long since we chatted. So it's good to reconnect. Yeah, you're welcome. It was fun. Um, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Hey folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there's something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online. You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode.